0: Now we're three, four months in to the war, and it is starting to spill over into the region. Of course, that was happening with the different Iranian-backed groups in the region already exchanging fire. But now this really seems like we're at a new level in terms of what could happen next, in terms of escalation.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines. Israel, 努力, 努力,
2: 努力。bravery takes you
1: through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward
2: you with
0: victory。祖国统一是历史必然两岸同胞要携手同心
2: I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me.
1: (laughs) In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan and Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilieva for an update from the region as Iran and Pakistan trade missile strikes and the war in Gaza continues. Then I speak to senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant to look at the Houthi rebel movement in Yemen. He explains where they come from, who their friends are, and what they want. Finally, we go to our Asia correspondent, Nicola Smith, who analyzes the continuing civil war in Myanmar as a rebel alliance pushes back the military junta's troops. It's Friday, the 19th of January, 2024. First, let's go to the Middle East with Sofia Yan in Istanbul and Natalia Vasilieva in Jerusalem. Sophia Yan, can you talk to us about what's happening between Pakistan and Iran in the last few days?
0: Iran engaged in its first direct military operations since war broke out between Israel and Hamas last October. And so Iran sent missiles into Iraq and Syria. Then less than a day later, Iran sent missiles into Pakistan. So there have been some casualties, others wounded. The loss of life, of course, is never anything to take lightly, but so far, These don't seem to have resulted in mass deaths. Now, Iraq and Pakistan have recalled their ambassadors from Tehran. Pakistan has launched strikes against Iran in response. Now, there's a lot of propaganda from Iran about why they're doing this. The U.S. has condemned Iran for acting in this way. What I want to focus on is really the question of why now. So far since the 7th, we've seen various militant groups in the region that are backed by Iran giving pressure already to Israel and also thus thereby the U.S. because the U.S. is Israel's staunchest ally. Uh, but now Iran is getting involved in a, a more significant way, so to speak, getting directly involved, not just kind of pulling the string as the puppet master with all these different proxy and rebel and militia groups and, and whatnot in the region. And what they're really doing is killing many birds with one stone. Uh, there are a lot of different areas that Iran is trying to address. First, it's got the long-standing rivalry. Iran has a long-standing rivalry with Israel and Western allies. So they're saying, "Hey, you know, we can choose to escalate the situation in this region at will. We have the firepower to get to your interests. Watch out. You know, this is definitely a show of force to Israel, to the US, to the UK. It's also a way for Iran to respond to what they perceive as domestic terrorist threats. Uh, There was a bombing in Iran in January, one of the worst attacks that they've suffered. Uh, At least 84 people killed, nearly 300 wounded. And this was very significant because it was at an event marking the anniversary of the death of a fierce battlefield commander, Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated by the U.S. four years ago. And then lastly, some experts think that the regime in Iran is trying to rile up some longstanding ethnic tensions. The strikes that Iran launched uh, into northern Iraq, that was into the Kurdish areas, and also in Balochistan province in Pakistan. So this, some people think, is a way to inflame rivalries within Iran with certain groups that were at the center of mass protests in recent years, basically trying to distract and halt the political challenge to the regime. So it's a lot going on in the region. It feels like this week, things really just exploded.
1: Absolutely. And how did Pakistan and Iraq respond? Where does this go next, do you think, Sufia?
0: Both those countries have recalled their ambassadors. Pakistan has launched strikes against Iran in response, and that has happened rather quickly. Some experts were predicting that Pakistan wouldn't respond. And this was partly based off the fact that the government seemed yesterday, when the Iranian strikes first occurred, They seem to try to keep things to a minimum. There was a a directive that was circulating online that appeared to come from the prime minister's office asking local media not to cover what had happened. And if you look at the statement from the foreign ministry from Pakistan, they don't actually say that there was a missile strike. They call it an incident. For instance, they condemn Iran for this act of aggression, you know, things like this. They say it was unprovoked. They use some fiery language, but they don't exactly confirm what happened and where it happened. And so there was a sense that they were trying to control public anger or or public discontent with what had happened, because then, of course, that puts pressure on the government to respond, perhaps. But there was a big debate just yesterday, on Wednesday, as to how the government or its military, how they might choose to react to this. And now we have the answer that they've actually moved. And so in some ways, countries in this region, they feel that they have to do something. They can't necessarily stay silent. But also right now, it's very tense. In many ways, the sphere of war escalating in the region has been around since day one, since that Hamas attack on October 7th and Israel moving in on Gaza. This has always been a concern. Now we're three, four months in to the war, and it is starting to spill over into the region. Of course, that was happening with the different Iranian-backed groups in the region already exchanging fire. But now this really seems like we're at a new level in terms of what could happen next in terms of escalation. At the same time, of course, all these countries, I mean, even Iran is saying like, you know, we don't want to escalate. That's what they're saying publicly. But then you look at what they're doing and it's completely different.
1: Thank you so much. For that, Sophia. Natalia Vasileva, let's go to you in Jerusalem. Sophia there mentioned how a lot of this sort of spills out from the 7th of October attacks um, against Israel by Hamas. So can you talk us through just some of the most recent updates from Israel itself? What's happening in the war there?
2: Hi, everyone. Well, I would say that compared to the escalation we're seeing between Pakistan and Iran, things here have been Fairly stable, I would hate to use the word because obviously the devastating Israeli invasion of Gaza is continuing at the same time. Israel still comes under sporadic rocket attacks from Hamas, so there there hasn't been much progress here. The ground operation is now in its fourth month, it's been over one hundred days since Israeli hostages were taken captive by Hamas and taken into Gaza. The IDF in recent days said that they have wrapped up intense heavy fighting in the north of Gaza and are hoping to do so in the south in Han Yunus. At the same time, there are questions asked across the political spectrum in Israel and by Israeli media about where this war is going and when it would be a good point to to call an end for it because Israel's stated goals were to decimate Hamas and to make sure that Southern Israelis is safe and people who were evacuated there can go back to their homes and live there in safety. And now we can see that Hamas is still there. We have not heard any credible reports of any of the Hamas leadership in Gaza who have been either killed or taken captive by the Israeli forces. They have not achieved that. At the same time, about two weeks ago, I think the Israeli government started telling residents from the south of Israel that maybe this is something, maybe they should consider going back to their communities because Hamas doesn't pose much of a threat anymore. And just early this week, we we had a massive barrage of missiles from from Gaza onto southern Israel, the biggest one in weeks, which obviously shows that southern Israel is still not secure. At the same time, Israel is carrying on um, with the war. Every day you would get reports from the idea of saying how many Hamas operatives they have killed or taken captive. But the end to this war, and more importantly, any achievements are still very elusive. I guess at this point, no one knows where it's going. At the same time, just uh, just as you talked about possible spillovers from the October 7th attack, we're also seeing increased cross-border clashes between Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel on, on the Israeli-Lebanese border. There were some reports last week that Hezbollah was willing to seek some sort of compromise with Israel, that it might be looking for a diplomatic solution, that it definitely didn't want an all-out war and amidst that we had a senior us official a white house envoy who visited beirut last week with the hope of bringing out a diplomatic solution but what we're hearing now uh, there were there were some reports in lebanese media on thursday that apparently whatever amos hochstein the US envoy had to offer was rejected out of hand. We heard reports that he was suggesting that Hezbollah withdraw about eight kilometers from the border and you know, thus avoiding an all-out war that everyone says they don't want. So what we're hearing now is that Hezbollah has rejected the offer and at the same time they left the door to negotiations open saying that they are, quote, willing to listen. At the same time, the Israel is signaling that it is unwilling to tolerate those daily cross-border attacks any longer, that its patience is running out. The chief of staff of the IDF was in the north on Wednesday, visiting drills for a simulated offensive inside Lebanon, as they described it. And he spoke quite candidly about what's happening on the border, saying that the risk of an all-out war is, is much higher right now, and he didn't want to sound as if it's not a, a possibility. And, and he said this is something that Israel needs to be prepared for. Again, in terms of going back to Gaza, we've been hearing from American officials for weeks that they are waiting for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government to come up with any sense of what their plans for Gaza are after the war. If they are if they're planning to station the troops there, if they are pl- planning to bring in Palestinians uh, officials from the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, what we've been hearing is that Benjamin Netanyahu is still very much unwilling to go either way and he's being criticized um, by both Israel's left and right by being indecisive by for, for not saying yes or no for bringing the Palestinian Authority because he's in a very delicate position. His popularity has been greatly dented by the October 7th attack. So it looks like he's quite unwilling to act because he's in a doomed if you do, doomed if you don't situation that whatever he does could either anger his right wing base and it would uh, collapse his coalition government or it would anger his American allies. So, at the moment, Israel is doing nothing. Just on Thursday morning, there was one statement from the Israeli president, which indicated some sort of willingness. We, we don't know if it was... It looks like it was probably aimed at the global audience rather than Israeli public. He was speaking at the International Economic Forum in Davos, where um, he mentioned the Palestinian Authority for the first time. He said that Israel wants a future where it can live together um, with Gaza and, and Palestinians and that um, quote, we need to find a dialogue with our neighbors, the Palestinians and offer a future, which is so far um, the most open A top Israeli official has been to accepting American suggestions that you know they need to cooperate with Palestinians about how to run Gaza after the war. But again, this is just a statement and it, we're not seeing any actual policy related to that at this point.
1: Thank you so much, Natalia, for talking us through all of that. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your reporting trip? I know you you mentioned you've been to Ramallah doing some interviews and being on the ground there. What was that like? What what were you doing there and who did you speak to?
2: Yeah, I, I basically spent a day and a half in Ramallah this week doing reporting for a story and also just doing some background meeting with Palestinian officials, with officials from Fatah the ruling party, just to get a sense of what's going on in the West Bank, because obviously that has been the hotspot in the regions for years, for decades. So far, it has been fairly quiet compared to what's happening in Gaza. But from my conversations in Ramallah this week, I brought back a sense of deep hopelessness and despair, not only based on emotions about what's happening in Gaza, because a lot of Palestinians have family and and friendly ties with people in Gaza, you know, it's very close to their heart, but also from the dire economic situation that the West Bank faces. Um, There are two things that Israel's international backers keep bringing up that haven't been resolved yet which are, first, the issue of tax revenues for the West Bank, and second, the issue of Palestinian workers working in Israel. First, Israel was supposed to wire millions of dollars in tax revenues that it collects in the West Bank back to the Palestinian Authority in October, but it didn't happen because the war started, and Israel's far-right finance minister said that at the time of war, it would be like funding your enemy, he would call Palestinians Nazis and things like that. So the Palestinian Authority is literally running out of money. They tax revenues would account for something like 70% of, of their funding. And it's been three months. And people there are struggling to, to think how they're going to survive if they don't have those tax revenues, which would be something that... The officials there would use to pay teachers and, and doctors and any state employees. Also, on top of that, th- there is about 150,000 Palestinian workers who used to come to Israel daily for different types of work, especially in the construction sector. So, on the one hand, you have the Israeli construction industry, which is really suffering from this labor shortage. And on the other hand, you have hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are who lost their income overnight. Their work permits were cancelled shortly after the attack, and there is no idea of when they're going to be able to come back. So you're talking about a large section of the population which is left without income, which brings me to the point of uh, potential upheaval in the West Bank. The West Bank has been fairly quiet since the uh, war in Gaza started. I know there were fears that the West Bank is going to go up in flames just on the high emotions that people felt about the war in Gaza. It hasn't happened. There were some protests, but people have been fairly quiet. And what I understood from my conversations with Palestinian officials was that Palestinians largely felt that if they were to rise up now in reaction to the war in Gaza, they would be sort of falling into the trap of, the Israeli government that would say, you know, we, we, we told you so, look at what's happening in, in the West Bank. Those, those people are good for nothing. They only want war. So that hasn't happened. Also, despite the fact that the IDF has increased its raids in the West Bank compared to any time in the past 20 years, if, if you look at the figures of the number of people arrested, And killed. So it has been... The public reaction has been surprisingly quiet. But what I've been hearing from, from people this week in Ramallah is that if there is any upheaval in the West Bank anytime soon, it would be economically driven because people are simply running out of money and there's not much they can do to earn a living because the idea behind the tax revenues for the West Bank and the idea behind the work permits for Palestinians was that if people in the West Bank are doing okay, if they have good jobs that they want to hold on, they would be busy with that. They wouldn't want to, you know, go and attack Israeli checkpoints. So the West Bank is in quite a precarious situation. I mean, it's been three months. If you think about any part of the world affected by by the COVID pandemic, where people were staying home, losing their income, you know, it's, it's a comparison that I guess anyone can relate to. But the COVID lockdowns lasted only as much, and it's been only three months. It's been already three months for the West Bank, and it doesn't look like this economic conundrum is going to be resolved anytime soon.
1: Well, let's try and draw some of this together then. We have Pakistan and Iran trading missile strikes. Iran also hitting Iraq. We have tensions growing on the Israeli-Lebanon border. We have continuing fighting in the Red Sea. So Yan, how does this all look from Turkey? And how dangerous do you think this moment in January 2024 is for the whole Middle East?
0: So at this point, after what Iran has done this week, it seems like Iran's putting the ball in in the court for the US and for Israel. One person I interviewed yesterday, an expert on Iran, his take uh, on this was that he thinks the Iranian regime is making the bet that because the U.S. does not want to get dragged more deeply into this region right now, that Iran can can do this, that they can kind of, you know, have this big show of firepower and that there won't be consequences, that there won't be a greater, stronger pushback beyond what we've already seen. And so far, this has been how the U.S. has operated. They have responded, for instance, launching attacks against the Houthis because Houthi attacks in the Red Sea have snarled global trade. This is a, a huge issue for many businesses around the world. The Red Sea route connects Asia to the Middle East, to Europe. And so it's it's been a disruption for the world. And so the US and its allies have launched this maritime patrol to try to deal with that. But Beyond that, it hasn't really responded in a a more direct military way. This is not something that the U.S. seems to want to do. Uh, And while the U.S. has vocally supported Israel, it has really kind of stopped at that. And so Iran seems to be banking on the fact that it can behave badly and not get in trouble for it right now. And and this is kind of, I guess, in, in their heads for the regime. You know, this is how they're choosing to operate at this point. And so all eyes now on the U.S. as to how to react, how to respond, how to deter, how to de-escalate, and pull back from the brink at this point. Right now, we've got the World Economic Forum going in Davos, and there are a lot of meetings happening. All the foreign ministers in the region talking to each other, the U.S. also, of course, there. There's a lot of thinking about what next. And from the perspective of a lot of countries in the Middle East, a lot of Arab countries, they're saying, you know what, this region and these tensions that we're facing, we have to think about why it's happening. And that goes back to the root cause, Israel, Hamas, Gaza. So that seems to be, I mean, that is what sparked all of this, this chaos now that we're seeing in the Middle East and what a lot of countries, including Iran, are saying now is we have to deal with that. And so that means they're looking again at Israel and at the US.
1: Natalia Vasileva and Sophia Yan, thank you so much for your time. For weeks now, we've been reporting on the continuing violence in the Red Sea as Houthi rebels target international shipping, military, and civilian. My thought this week is that it would be worth pausing for a moment to look in more detail at the Houthis. Who are they? How do they come to be in power? Who are their allies? And crucially, what do they want? Here's my conversation with Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant. Well, thank you so much, Roland, for your time. Let's start with some really broad questions then. Who are the Houthis? Where do they come from?
3: So the Houthis are an armed group. They originate in kind of north, the northwestern part of Yemen. They currently control... 25 to 30% of the country, including the capital, Sana'a, and large chunk of the western coast on the Red Sea, including the port of Hodeida, which is quite a big port. Who they are, it can be difficult to pin down. So they, they began as a kind of theological youth movement out of a sect of Shia Islam called the Zaidis. So the leader who started it was a man called Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi. So they take their, their name, from their leader's family name he was killed by the Yemeni government in 2004 when the movement got radicalized basically following the invasion american-led invasion of iraq after that his brother abdul malik al houthi who still leads the group today led an insurgency against the Yemeni government which rumbled on for years and they claimed to have killed him in 2009 and then he he did a kind of jack-in-the-box act you know came back from the dead, very embarrassing for the government, cemented his kind of status in Yemen. But they really become prominent in 2014, 2015, when off the back of the Arab Spring, where in Yemen, as in many other states across the Middle East, you had a kind of uprising of very disillusioned, mostly young people, Um, fed up with things like corruption, dead-end jobs, not many prospects, a very long-serving dictator basically running the place. Similar kind of problems as you saw in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Syria that sparked these protests. Similar kind of thing in in Yemen. As elsewhere, you had an alliance of groups getting together who just wanted change and were tapping into this kind of upsurge of, of public fatigue with the powers that be, the Houthis were involved in that. And then they were involved in the governing council that ran Yemen after that. But then 2014, they staged their own coup. They seized control of Sana'a. They seized control of Hadeda. The Saudis then decide they're going to intervene. They're going to restore the legitimate government. So Saudi Arabia puts together its own alliance. They launched an invasion. They think that war is going to take about six weeks to put these these upstarts with AK-47s and flip-flops back in their box. Nine years later... The Saudis are still trying to extract themselves from that quagmire and the Houthis still control Sana'a. Not only do they still control Sana'a, um, they're threatening to shut down you know, shipping through the Red Sea.
1: What are their driving forces? What do they want? I, mean, I know in, I'm asking that because in your article, you and the other journalists writing it say it, it can be difficult to know what their objectives
3: are. Yeah, so normally they're a religious group, right? And it's not about clan and it's not about family. Although, you know, in any movement... Family, clan, associations will help you rise, and so on. But nominally, anyone can subscribe to the ideology, and then you're a Houthi. That's that's the way it goes. So, theoretically, a particular branch of Shia Islam, with you know, critics would say they've imposed kind of fairly harsh restrictions on on women in areas they control and things like that. But really, the agenda is much broader than that. So, yes, they talk about revolutionary, Islamic, religious credentials, but they also talk about kind of economic populism. You know, we're here to fight corruption. We're here to stand up for the ordinary man against, you know, these, these vested interests that have run the country for too long, all that kind of thing. They then go on and kind of expand that to death to Israel, death to America. And all of that seems to be designed to reach the broadest possible constituency. So if one was a cynic, perhaps, one might suggest that what they're really interested in is power. And, and, and this is designed to de- broaden their appeal as much as possible.
1: Can we talk about their links to Iran? It might be one of the things that lots of listeners will be familiar with hearing the phrase, you know, the Houthi movement backed by Iran. Could you talk about that? What what
3: does that mean in practice? And is there a sense in which that might be overblown? And if so, why? So It's really interesting, this question. They, I mean, they d- at one level, they definitely are backed by Iran. Right? Part of the reason they were able to stand up to the Saudi and Emirati coalition who who invaded Yemen to remove them so well was because they were getting arms and training from Iran. Like, there's no question about that. The anti ship missiles we've seen, the drones we've seen, that's the kind of technology that that comes from Iran. So there's there's no question that that relationship exists. But very interestingly, I mean, when you talk to Yemenis, uh, Yemeni experts who who follow them, even when you talk to kind of Western officials from countries who are pretty anti-Iranian, I would say, you'll get this pushback. Don't don't overstate that. You know, people are a little bit cautious about painting this picture that basically the Houthis are simply a branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or something like that. And I think I think the reason for that caution is that as with Iran's relationship with most of its so-called proxy forces across the Middle East, Hezbollah Hamas to a lesser extent, certain groups in Iraq. Yes, there's a relationship. Yes, obviously Iran seeks to leverage their relationship with these people for their own objectives. But proxies also have their own agendas and their own interests and they're pretty strong-minded. So as one person said to me, look, this this is absolutely not a case of, uh, you know, Iran says jump and Houthis say how high. They've got a very strong sense of who they are and what they want. That happens to dovetail quite closely with what Iran wants at the moment. Now, specifically on what's happening in the Red Sea with these strikes on ships, I think in that particular case, it's pretty clear that Iran's interests and Houthi interests align very, very closely. Because for the Iranians, they get somebody else you know as they would say intervening in the Israel Gaza war that allows the Iranians to say look our axis of resistance is standing up to Israel yes we couldn't go to war with Israel ourselves but we are doing something the houthis get to say to the world we are the only force in the middle east who are standing up to israel and that gets them quite a bit of support on the arab street to be absolutely honest you know and then the neighboring governments including the saudis who have been fighting for 9 years are pretty cautious about openly criticizing them because of that and of course you prove your your worth to Iran, that's going to guarantee more stuff coming in. But definitely, in every single conversation I've had about them, definitely this pushback, definitely this caution against saying, don't see an Iranian behind every door. Don't just assume that these are simply a tool of Tehran. They've got their own stuff going on as well.
1: And with the recent strikes on Houthi positions and sort of you know, they've been firing rockets and missiles and the Americans and the Brits have been bombing them, do we know how much that's impacted them? Is this something that's going to severely degrade their military capabilities? Or is it more of a sort of warning shot, like, you know, don't do that again? And do
3: you think it's working? Well, the British Ministry of Defence has said, you know, well, after the strikes, which were a few days ago now, they were saying we're still assessing the damage, but it looks like their ability to do this has been degraded. But then, you know, right a day or two after that, a ship was hit... So they're still capable of doing this. Look, the problem is you're trying to fight from the air a military force that has defied and, and completely not been defeated by an airland campaign for nine years, right? They're very experienced about doing this. And, you know, the the signals were there. Like the, the Western officials involved in this were telling us, you know, in, in the run-up to this, they were saying, like, look, we, we've done everything. We've been sending so many diplomatic signals saying, look, you've got to climb down, you've got to climb down. But there are going to be consequences if you don't stop these attacks. So they knew they were coming, basically. So probably they had, you know, the opportunity, the time to relocate and things like that. I mean, most people feel like a few strikes like that are unlikely to have seriously degraded their ability to continue to intervene. Obviously, we don't know that. Maybe maybe the strikes hit enough of their ammunition dumps or their radar or their guidance systems to make it more difficult. But most people feel that these limited strikes, it's going to be a stretch to say that's definitely going to seriously erode their capabilities.
1: You touched on it briefly earlier, but I wonder if there's anything more we can say about what we know about life in Houthi-run areas. You mentioned some of the restrictions against women. Is there much more we know, or is it quite difficult to get a sense of their popularity, the laws, and everything else?
3: I mean, there's definitely stories of they run they run the place with an iron fist to, to trot out the, the cliche. I mean, there's a there's a secret police. They don't tolerate dissent. Their critics, other Yemenis, say that they've been pretty restrictive about women's rights. I and mean, the Houthis themselves claim to kind of want to have a secular democracy where women can have seats in parliament and, and so on and so forth, uh, a bit like Iran. They've denied publicly that they want to have an Islamic regime like in Iran because they say, well, we acknowledge that actually Sunnis are the majority population of Yemen. But nonetheless, uh, the critics say it's been pretty nasty where they are. Their critics will say they have stolen aid that was coming in. Yemen was the scene of an absolutely atrocious humanitarian crisis during the nine-year war. The Saudi alliance took a lot of the blame for imposing a blockade on on Houthi-held areas. Uh, the Houthis themselves have conducted sieges of other towns where they've kind of done the same thing to people there. So all in all pretty harsh. I mean, one person I spoke to, he kind of said they've been less effective at demonstrating effective governance than other groups in the kind of Iran-led axis of resistance. So, if you think about Hezbollah, you think about Hamas, part of their appeal, part of the way they've kind of asserted themselves, besides crushing resistance and so on, was to create a state within a state and to provide some kind of services, right? So, part of Hamas's initial appeal in Gaza was that they were not the corrupt Palestinian authority. They seemed to get things done. They weren't like driving around in big flash cars like the, the official Fatah guys, things like that. So one Yemeni expert I spoke to said they haven't reached those levels of competence that say Hamas or Hezbollah did because they are so militarized like everything they do is about war they were forged in 9 years of war they always prioritize uh, the military over the civil um, was the way it was put to me
1: So from everything we know about the group I'm not asking for predictions but how do we what should we be taking into account Looking at the next few weeks, the next few months, how, how do
3: how do we think they're going to react to further strikes? How can this? How do you see this playing out? Well, they've said they're going to react to further strikes by striking American assets in the Middle East and widening their campaign. Now, they've demonstrated that they can strike deep into Saudi Arabia before with capabilities the Iranians have given them. So that's not beyond the realms of possibility. There's always a bit of bravado in these things. So that's not to predict anything. I do think it's unlikely that that one round of strikes is going to effectively suppress them. I think probably they would respond by firing some more rockets because it suits them, this confrontation, which then puts the West in this, this position of, okay, do we escalate? And how long are we going to keep bombing them? And okay, the West's target is much more limited than the Saudi's target. The West's objective is not to eliminate the Houthis or drive them from power or anything like that. It's just to stop them attacking shipping in the Red Sea. Now, I think because it's not clear that the, the military solution is going to work there, that puts the West in an awkward position because officially they don't want to link this with Gaza and Israel. But the Houthis say that we're doing this in response to Israel's operation in Gaza. And you talk to a British official, Lord Cameron, whoever, they really don't want to make that link. They say this has got nothing to do with Israel and Gaza. We are simply protecting freedom of navigation. And they don't want that link because they don't want you know the Houthis to be able to claim this role as defenders of the Palestinian people and, and t- turning this into this West versus the broader Islamic world kind of war. But that's what they want. And and I do wonder if, you know, when it comes down to it, this threat to Red Sea shipping, which the Houthis have produced, may factor into Western pressure on Israel to wind things down in Gaza. I don't think you'll have Western officials admitting that. I think it's the kind of thing that would be discussed behind closed doors. But I do think it presents a serious problem for the West because I think the Houthis have demonstrated they do have some leverage here they're willing to use it, and it's not clear to me yet that the Western military response is going to be enough to, to deal with it or neutralize it. Maybe it will be that you know that, that, those are the kind of considerations I think.
1: Roland, is there anything we haven't
3: spoken about in relation to the group that you think is important for our listeners to to understand? There is one little bit of context, which is that until this happened, there was a United Nations-backed kind of peace process between the Houthis and Saudi going on, which was making progress. Everyone was really happy. Well, you know, it, it was viewed positively. Diplomats officials were saying things like progress is being made. So that's now, you know, massively in jeopardy. That's why, interestingly, you know, the Saudis are not cheerleading Western strikes against the Houthis. They're calling for restraint publicly because they really want to get out of Yemen. But also because they're they're very aware that if you are the only group, state, whatever, that is seen to be taking some kind of military action in support of Gaza, it's very difficult for for an Arab government to be seen to to criticize that. Ronan, thank you so much. You're welcome.
1: The civil war in Myanmar has been in the news for many months now. It's a confusing, complicated conflict that sees an overstretched military battle a rebel alliance of armed groups from across the country. To make sense of the conflict and ask what may happen next, I'm joined by The Telegraph's Asia correspondent, Nicola Smith. Before we get into the news this week from Myanmar, Nicola, would you give the context and history here? Why is there a civil war in Myanmar?
4: Sure. It is important to look back at the history of Myanmar to understand the the current context and of what's going on. So, Myanmar became independent from British rule in 1948. And since that time, it has really struggled. It's grappled with how to govern a multi-ethnic society. And this has led to one of the world's longest ongoing civil wars. And so, In 1962, first of all, there was a coup that introduced uh, a brutal military dictatorship which held control of the country for decades. It also meant that this military dictatorship refused to have any kind of federal system and so that led to the build-up of ethnic armed organizations like the ones we're seeing today. In 1988, there was then a student uprising that was very brutally crushed and that's when you saw and Tang Suu Chi come to the fore. She was the leader of uh, the National League for Democracy. And there was an election in 1990, but the military didn't like the result of that. And they put her under house arrest. And then she became one of the, the world's most famous political prisoners. She was released in 2010. And then there was a hope for some kind of democratic system in Myanmar. There were elections in 2015, which her party won. But then the military still had a a very strong grip on the country. So that's when we saw uh, in 2017 the awful way that the Rohingya were treated. They were driven out of the country. There was accusations of ethnic cleansing and some terrible crimes took place. If we fast forward then to November 2020, there was another election and the NLD and Sun Tzu party, she was a civilian leader at that time, they won a landslide. And the military really did not like that. They, they felt that they were losing their grip on power. And so they claimed election fraud without any proof. And then they instigated a coup and uh, this was in February 2021. They arrested Aung San and many leading members of the NLD and mm-hmm. they seized power. So that's when we started to see uh, mass protests break out onto the streets of Myanmar's major cities and a lot of young people in their late teens, all they'd known really was This sense that Myanmar was a fledgling democracy, that they had more rights, that they had more freedoms, and suddenly these were taken away. And so they took to the streets and there were mass protests every day. But then the military started once again to really crack down very hard and you saw some terrible scenes. You saw snipers that were taking out, young people picking them off. Anyone caught opposing the military was tortured very badly thousands and thousands of prisoners. And at the same time, uh, this really fueled these uh, ethnic insurgencies again. These have been ongoing for decades, but this all played into the general political and civil unrest.
1: Um, Thank you so much for that overview. Um, Before we get into the recent events then, let's just look at the rebels uh, in a little more detail. Who, Who are they exactly? You say ethnic insurgencies. We've heard talk of this three brotherhood alliance. What's that?
4: This trouble, this unrest has been carrying on in Myanmar for several years now, since the 2021 coup. Initially, there was a lot of uh, global attention on it, a lot of media coverage. And then Ukraine happened, also unrest in the Middle East sparked up. So it, it was largely going onto the radar. There were... A lot of atrocities being committed in the border regions of Myanmar, where you have a lot of the ethnic groups and ethnic armed organisations. The military stamped out mass protests in the cities. They've been conducting atrocities in the ethnic areas. They've been carrying out airstrikes against villages, uh, wiping out entire villages with ground operations. And so throughout 2022, you had an alliance of ethnic forces who were basically planning an insurgency. They were planning an upsurge of resistance against the military. And so this took place on October 27th last year. It's called Operation 1027, which is linked to the day that this upsurge of resistance began. And it began in Shan State in the north, which borders China. And so you had three major groups coming together called the Three Brotherhood Alliance. And these groups are the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army and the TNLA, which is the Tahang National Liberation Army, and also the Arakan Army. And so these are very well-established ethnic armed organisations. They came together to launch this surprise attack on the military in Shan State in the north. And they found that it was very successful. They immediately started to overtake these military outposts. They've now overtaken more than 400 military bases. They've seized several towns, including the town of Lalkai, which is a key border crossing with China. And as they were building up their offensive in Shan State, other ethnic armed organizations in other parts of the country on the border with Thailand on the border with India they saw this happening and they too also started to to build up their own forces and their own attacks on the military and so this momentum built up across the country and this was analysts say that this is unprecedented coordination between these ethnic armed groups You also saw people's defence forces joining in. Now the PDFs, they emerged after the coup. There was a, a huge civil disobedience movement where doctors and other civil servants went on strike. Other people started to join kind of ad hoc armed groups to conduct resistance within the cities. And so they have also joined in this latest surge of resistance. And this has been defined as a real turning point, that this is one of the most significant challenges that the military has faced since the coup, and that many people hope that this will be a breakthrough, that it will be a turning point for the future of the country.
1: So what's the state of the fighting at the moment? And in, in your view, how did these rebel groups, these disparate rebel groups, really capture the momentum if they're fighting the, the state's military itself?
4: Well, it's partly because the, the military itself is very overstretched. I mean, now it has battles on multiple fronts. It was already running out of cash and resources. There had already been a lot of attrition. It's hard to know how many desertions there have been. But the National Unity Government, which was for- also formed after the coup from politicians who were denied the right to to enter parliament by the coup, they estimate that some 15 to 16,000 soldiers have defected from the army since the coup. They're very demoralised, they're low on supplies. And so that is one of the reasons why it has been easier for these insurgents to overtake bases. There have been a lot of targeted sanctions against the military, which appears to have made some difference as well. But I think really it's it's also a a psychological battle as well. Once the Three Brotherhood Alliance started making these gains, this has been a huge boost in morale for other resistance groups who see that there can be a shift. There has been a a, a shift in the balance of power. The, the equilibrium is changing, that for so long there has been this narrative that it's only the military that can keep the country together, that the military is all-powerful, and people have been seeing that that can change and that they desperately want change. When you speak to the national unity government, who are essentially a government in exile, and they say that they want to try and introduce A federal system, that they want to return democracy to the country. And that's what many people want. They've been suffering terribly from this military oppression and brutality that the the military has basically been acting with absolute impunity against its own people and committing horrific, terrible crimes against them.
1: Who are the other important people in this war in Myanmar that we should be aware of? That we should, you know, be following and watching their movements.
4: I think China is is really playing a, a big role behind the scenes, which has been interesting to watch. China has very substantial oil, gas, and infrastructure interests in Myanmar, and the Chinese were very unhappy with the coup. They they want to basically protect their own interests and and their own people, they seem to be playing both sides at the moment. And it, it was said that at the start of Operation 1027 that it would not have happened unless China had given its tacit blessing and it should be said that china is still speaking to the military regime as well as sending high level delegates there to, to talk to them as well but one of the interesting things in shan state was that there was a a, a growth of organized crime which really impacted china very badly and that was the spurt of scam centers where hundreds of thousands of people have been trafficked into these prison-like compounds, lured with the promise of a fake job, and then forced to carry out internet fraud and uh, online crimes. And a lot of Chinese citizens have been affected by that. People have been scammed all over the world, including the UK by these compounds. And they were allowed to run there in this, these lawless parts of Myanmar. The military was doing nothing about it. And that really lost them a lot of favor with China. China really ran out of patience. There was an instant where it's believed that Chinese Uh, undercover police officers were shot during a sudden outbreak of violence in one of these compounds. And so many analysts believe that China allowed this upsurge of resistance to happen because the the Three Brotherhood Alliance came in and they said, well, we're going to fight against these scam compounds. And that won them some favour with Beijing. But at the same time, Beijing is also speaking to the military junta and really kind of looking to protect its own interests. And so the the national unity government is trying to court China, is trying to seek their support to uh, help them achieve their own goals in Myanmar. And it's still very unclear whether that's going to happen or not. Um, And China more recently, last week, said that it had helped to broker uh, a ceasefire it's very difficult to see if that is going to hold because uh, there has already been uh, a town very close to the Indian border that has been seized since that by the rebels since that ceasefire was signed and there seems to be ongoing fighting. So I do think that China's got a big role to play in the future and that's something we should watch out for.
1: What's been the impact on civilians in, in this conflict so far?
4: Civilians have really borne the brunt of the unrest in Myanmar in a very terrible way and often a very unseen way. There's been immense suffering by ordinary people. So first of all, it's estimated that 2.5 million have been displaced internally since the start of the coup and some 500,000 since October. Many of these people are living in Impoverished camps. Some of them are living in the jungle. You have children going to school in the jungle using rocks with chalk to try and carry out their lessons. At the same time, they're facing so many airstrikes. There was a particularly bad one in April in central Myanmar, where almost 170 people were killed, and it was believed that the the junta had dropped a thermobaric bomb on them. Which uh, was a horrific kind of explosive that generates extreme temperatures over a last a large blast area. Uh, a lot of hospitals, schools, churches, places of worship have been deliberately targeted in airstrikes by the junta. And just on a day to day level, there has been a complete collapse of. Uh, The economy and the healthcare system, and so we're seeing things like we're seeing ancient diseases like leprosy coming back, HIV, TB. People are not getting their medicine. Kidney trafficking is is starting up. We did a story on that on that recently. The World Bank said at the end of 2023 that the country's economy was only forecast to grow by one percent, which would leave it 10 percent smaller in 2024 than it was five years ago. So the country's in a complete mess. People are facing violence, but they also just can't live ordinary lives. They can't just go to the doctor. They can't go to um, a hospital if they have a serious ailment. The junta has, has completely wrecked the country and is also attacking its own people on a, on a daily basis.
1: Nicola, what happens next? How do you think the next few weeks and months may play out?
4: It's very hard to tell at the moment what direction this is going to go in. The military has been weakened and it is facing its biggest challenge to date. But nobody believes that it's about to fall imminently. It it has a very strong will to stay in power and has done so for decades. But the balance of power is shifting towards the resistance movement they're making, they're still making a lot of gains. Some people suggest that it could end up in some kind of negotiated settlement. Others think that the military is going to drill down even harder and step up airstrikes and violence against ordinary civilians. But really, the future of the country is still very much in the balance. It's very hard to predict what comes next.
1: Nicola Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine The Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.